0: Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. And on this special edition of PreserveCast, we'll sit down with Daniel Sol, the executive director of the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans, to talk about a threat to that city's most iconic historic district, the French Quarter. We'll also talk about what you can do to help protect this important place. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we're excited to be talking once again with Danielle Del Sol of the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans. Um, But today, we're talking, we're calling this an emergency edition of Preserve Cast. We're going to talk about an issue that is happening right now and one that could impact a place that not only matters to uh, Louisianans, but to people all across the country. And that is the future integrity of. Um, one of the most iconic historic districts in the country, uh, the French Quarter. Uh, And we're going to talk all about what's happening there and how people can get involved. Um, But before we jump in, just so people remember who you are and what the PRC does, um, talk to us a little bit about that. Where did you grow up? How did you get in preservation? And what is the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans?
1: Yeah. Hi, this is Danielle Del Sol. I'm executive director. Of the Preservation Resource Center, I've been in this role for five years. I've been with the organization for 12 years. Um, I'm from South Florida originally. And so um, and I had a wa- long roundabout way of getting into historic preservation. But the short story is that I was a journalist working in Little Rock, Arkansas, and covering a real estate and business beat and met people who were restoring historic properties in the historic downtown neighborhoods really fell in love with what they were doing and thought it was just such a smart way to be sustainable, be economically smart, um, and, oh, yeah, preserve history and people's stories and communities as well. And so I ended up going to Tulane for a historic preservation master's degree and found that New Orleans was this beautiful mix of the tropical weather I was used to uh, growing up. And then, but actually, there was actual historic buildings that people really loved. Um, So I was lucky to get to stay And here I am all these years later. Uh, The PRC was founded in 1974. So we are 49 years old, Uh, have a big anniversary. We ourselves become historic next year. Um, And we are a nation that really focuses on advocacy, education, easements, um, and communications. Um, And so, you know, the biggest historic preservation nonprofit in the state of Louisiana. I'm really proud of the work that we do.
0: So I think a lot of people, just because it's this, and you can go back and listen, we'll put a link in the show notes to our previous conversation where we talk about preservation in Louisiana and what that means and preservation, particularly in New Orleans and what that means. Um, in a city that in some ways is almost uh, like many others, uh, can sometimes tourism can love it to death. There's a lot of different <laughs> tough, tough ways of dealing with tourism and balancing that against livability and the people who live there. But because of the, the status of New Orleans and in particular the French Quarter, many people listening are probably familiar with this place. Um, have come to love it for a variety of different reasons, whether it be the culture, the music, the food, the architecture, and the interesting way in which those all kind of come together and create this this beautiful um, tapestry of of culture and place. Um, so, with something so important, so special, um, I would imagine that every member of uh, the City Council of New Orleans is doing everything they can to protect that place. And would I be wrong in that, Danielle?
1: You are wrong. You're very wrong. What? Yes. This is something that no matter how many times we prove how economically smart it is to preserve our historic building stock. Um, it just it doesn't matter. Every year, every few years we get new council people, unless they're intrinsically preservationists, which rarely happens, they have to be educated and kind of won over to the preservation side anew. And so this ordinance was proposed. Um, it went through city council very quietly. It was like slipped in. Nobody knew about it two weeks ago. In New Orleans, for the city council to hear an ordinance and vote on it, it must be introduced and then cannot come up for a vote until the next meeting, which, which will be two weeks later. So they meet every two weeks. So this ordinance was slipped in. It was read into you know the minutes, which meant that today, Thursday, May 25th, it could have been voted on. We found out about this ordinance um, a few days after it was read into the city council meeting. So that left us less than two weeks <laughs> to try and thwart the most egregious ordinance to threaten New Orleans historic architecture that any of us have ever seen. And by us, I mean people of my generation, people of two generations older than me, uh, the founding members of the PRC. I mean, nothing has ever been so outwardly threatening and dangerous to historic architecture in our city the the
0: yeah yeah I was going to say why don't you tell us what is that's probably where you were headed you're you're yeah. a good good journalist you can paint paint a story here but uh tell us what what is so egregious about this why what's in it why is this a, an emergency episode of preserve cast with an ask at the end
1: so the ordinance propose, proposed proposed that the Vucure Commission, which is the city agency that protects the French Quarter, and they they as an agency have much broader reach than any other of our historic districts that are protected by the city. So we have something like 23 historic districts that um, are overseen by staff at City Hall uh, for local jurisdiction. But the French border, the Vukare, is by far the most stringently held district. So the Vukare Commission can uh, dictate paint color. Um, they, you know, dictate all sorts of building elements. And every other historic district in New Orleans, if there is some sort of historic protection, it's gonna focus just on the interior that you can or I'm sorry, the exterior that you can see from the public right-of-way. So it's not gonna look at the back of your house or anything like that. In the French Quarter, anything that the outside air touches is part of the VCC, the Bucharest Commission's jurisdiction. So that includes backyards, courtyards, the back of your house, any, you know, um, uh, outbuildings that you have all fall under the jurisdiction of the VCC. Because every single building in this, you know, 422 acre district is very old and very important. the other thing to note is that the Carré Commission is not just a city agency. Yes, it's administered by the city, but it was actually the second oldest historic district that was codified through a state legislature. Um, and that happened in 1936. So Charleston beat us by a few years. But the French Quarter was the whole state took a vote and voted to put the protection of the French Quarter through the establishment of the Carré Commission into the Louisiana state constitution back in the 1930s. So it has been codified and allowed to do its job for most of this time ever since.
0: Right, so none of these protections that we're talking about are new. They weren't foisted on property right. owners. Right. Nobody probably who owns property uh, in the French Quarter at this point ever, I mean, maybe maybe generations ago their family did, but nobody at this point has ever You know, own property under any other scenario. This is all that they've ever known.
1: Exactly. Everyone's well aware. They might complain about it, but there's no excuses for why you didn't know. Which people love to pull in other (laughs) districts uh, at times. So, the ordinance that was proposed by the councilman who oversees the French Quarter, amongst other parts of the city, his name is Freddie King III. Councilman King authored this ordinance, and it proposed a one-year moratorium on the enforcement of, uh, VCC violations, Vucrae commission violations. Um, so essentially the Vucrae commission from the moment this ordinance was passed, they could issue citations. They could tell you not to do something to your building, but you didn't have to listen to them. They couldn't actually adjudicate you for a full year. Um, which would have, you know, translated to basically a free-for-all um and property owners would have been able to do whatever they wanted with their buildings for a full year. and then it was unclear as to whether you know they would have to ask forgiveness after that year for what they did or it was just very obvious that this was a grab by certain bourbon Street business owners. and that is not. Hearsay that was actually published in the newspaper <laughs> when news of this ordinance came out. It listed three gentlemen who are attorneys representing Bourbon Street bars and strip clubs as being the ones who have helped Councilman King author the ordinance.
0: So we have an ordinance that's been introduced. It creates a moratorium on fines. So basically, just ties the Vucarese Commission's ability to adjudicate or hold anyone. Um, accountable. Um, it's There's a, a certain interest that has has pushed this forward, but it doesn't just impact one street, it impacts 422 acres. Um, and I would imagine some people, it's sort of like an H, the way we kind of, I've talked about this, is like an HOA, it, it protects your property value. So I imagine there's some people who paid in and have made huge investments who look at this as a, as sort of a, a, a I, well, I suppose they look at this as something that, you know, impacts their property value, but also is sort of a betrayal of trust. Like they expected that when you buy into something that is written into the Louisiana constitution, uh, it would take perhaps an act of constitutional amendment to change this. Absolutely. Um, so is this even legal?
1: <laughs> Doubtful. Um, the city of New Orleans, uh, city attorney's office actually issued a ruling a few days ago saying that it was highly likely that it was illegal given its constitutionality. Um, and so that doesn't matter, you know, it could still be pushed through city council on a vote. If it's adopted by the city council, it can be just challenged from that point in court, but technically, you know, it could still go full steam ahead until somebody took it to court and challenged it. And what are the potential
0: impacts of this? I mean, we've kind of danced around it, but I mean, are you talking about whole-scale demolition?
1: That would be, I mean, it's possible. It could happen without these protections. It's absolutely possible. I don't know that it's likely. I think what's more likely is, you know, we see uh, plans come before the Vucray Commission all the time that seek to kind of do a Margaritaville treatment on buildings where, you know, they want it to be extra French Quarter E. So add balcony, you know, lacy balconies where there were none before, have flashy neon signage, um, you know, maximize uh, exterior frontage by perhaps removing building elements so that they can get, you know, patio seating or what what have you. Um, So just there would be no protection for the historic integrity of the building. These these proposed sorts of proposals are always denied by the BCC because they'll look at the precedent of the building. How was the building? What did it look like when it was originally built? What were the plans? Uh, what did it look like 100 years ago? They have all this information. It's very well researched and documented. And so they can go back and say, well, listen, we appreciate that you want more balconies, but there were never balconies there. You cannot just add something a historic uh, to this property. So that would all go out the window and people could just do as they please. I mean, in my mind, what then happens is the Bourbon the Bourbon Street signage, you know, egregious signage and, um, uh, you know, kind of like I said, New Orleans, uh, uh, French Quarter-y, um fake stuff then proliferates beyond Bourbon Street into the rest of the quarter. Whereas right now, that mess is contained by and large to Bourbon Street. Um, And it's already failing as a residential neighborhood. The last school in the French Quarter is closing this year, um, which is very sad to see. Uh, You know, grocery stores in that district are by and large gone. It's really the neighborhood has struggled to remain a residential community um, as short-term rental, illegal short-term rentals and second homes have proliferated. And so this would be just another kind of nail in that coffin of trying to keep the French Quarter authentic and livable for people who actually want to keep it a community.
0: Yeah, and I feel like here, right in front of us, is the great sort of paradigm of preservation and places like New Orleans, like Nashville, like Charleston, um, like Savannah, is that the very thing that makes them so attractive is then the thing that they attempt to sacrifice. We see it here in in cities in, in Maryland as well. I mean, it, it happens all over the place, but this is just pushed to its most egregious example. Um, and people listening who don't live in New Orleans, but care about places like New Orleans, or perhaps they live in Charleston or Savannah, um, and think, well, this can't happen here, Um it, it can, obviously, but I don't think anyone would have expected that uh, the restrictions um, would be lifted for a year and a moratorium put in place in a place like New Orleans in the French Quarter that, you know, must be a hundred million or billion dollar industry in terms of tourism and, and travel to um, New Orleans. So for people listening who are not pleased with what they're hearing Um, And we don't bring a lot of these sort of hot button advocacy issues to listeners, but this one seems like it's timely because it tells a story about what's happening in preservation. It's impacting a place that is nationally significant um, and it's happening in a moment. People still can take action. So people who are listening, whether they live in New Orleans or if they live outside, but are visitors and have spent money there before, what can they do?
1: Thank you, Nick. The opportunity to reach out to your audience is really special. So I really appreciate it. Um, we have a change.org petition that I can send you the link to. You could put on your Fraser Cast website. Yep, you can we'll put it in the send, show notes. Yep. Okay, great. You can also send an email to Freddie King, the council member who has proposed this ordinance, uh, stating your displeasure with this. Um, I'm happy to report that in the past few days, we've had a tremendous amount of success rallying our troops. Um we really found out about it late last week on Friday and we announced that this was happening to the whole world taking everybody by surprise and telling everybody to come to the PRC Monday night for a town hall meeting. We had so many people in our building that people were lined up at the door and down the street. We had something like 3 to 400 people show up and cram into our building. And Freddie King to his credit came. He came and he answered questions and he admitted that he did not Understand the amount of pushback he would get for this ordinance, and so he has agreed to rewrite it. Um, he he declined the opportunity when we put him on the spot. He declined the opportunity to withdraw it completely, but he promised to rewrite it. He promised to have preservationists at the table when that happens. So now we just have to be vigilant and hold him to his word and make sure that we are indeed included. You have to understand in New Orleans, um, tourism is our number one economy. And that's pretty much all we've got. It's sad, but it's true. And so, you know, business owners like those in the French Quarter will always have a tremendous amount of sway. But when that is our top economic driver, their influence is all the more powerful. And so I understand how this council person was kind of made to believe, perhaps that he had to do this to protect the interests of the build of the businesses in the French quarter. But he did underestimate how many people from across the city and region would chime in and say, This is unacceptable. You cannot take away the protection of our of our original city,
0: right. And I think, you know, in all these cases and been involved in a lot of advocacy fights, is that, you know, you can be um, respectful and uh, forthright. We don't have to be uh, hypercritical or call into question someone's motives when doing something like this. But for people listening who you know we have a lot of listeners across the country and across the you know the, the world for that matter, who um, have visited New Orleans and might come back again in the future, I think uh, a good message would be the authenticity of this place actually matters. That's why I come to this place. That's why I spend the money. Um, You can go to any Margaritaville. um, You know, uh, I I don't, but you could, one could (laughs) go to any Margaritaville anywhere. Yeah. um, But there is only one French Quarter and you know, thanks to the work of the PRC and those who went before, it it exists today. It has stood down many foes. It has stood down interstates and a whole host of bad ideas, and this right. just being the latest one. Um, but it's important that we uh, make sure people all across the country and people who love preservation are aware of this issue and aware of sort of this trend, uh, where it's sort of this knee jerk reaction just to say, "Oh yeah, these these regulations are bad." Um, and we're just going to toss them out completely. And um, there are ways things can be adapted, and the preservation community can be at the table and be a part of that conversation. Um, and some of it, I think, also, you know, as much as we look at the regulation side, are there incentives? Uh, you know, what does the incentive side look like as well? Um, so, Uh, when, you know, people can jump on, we'll have the links all here in the show notes. So it's easy for people to sign the petition, send an email, but, uh, when do we expect to have any resolution around this topic?
1: Well, it's supposed to come before committee at council in late June. So I can update you then one kind of key takeaway. If you don't mind me just taking a minute to say this was, um, after our town hall meeting and we structured it very carefully so that, you know, we kind of only presented facts to begin with, and then we opened up the floor for question and answer. And we kind of warned the audience that they were expected to be civil. Um, (laughs) Afterwards, um, the council person's chief of staff pulled me inside and said, Listen, we had an issue a few months ago where we came to these meetings and people just screamed at us the whole time. And we didn't want to work with them. We didn't care what they had to say. We just kind of blew them off. But you all have been so respectful um, and willing to work with us that we really look forward to working with you moving forward. And that made me really proud that you know, in a, in a field where at times we've had to strap ourselves uh, to buildings, you know, to keep bulldozers from doing their thing, or we've had to yell and scream. We kind of entered this new era where as much as we can, we try to sit down at the table and be, you know, work with diplomacy and respect. And, you know, at some point, if if someone's unwilling to be respectful, or, you know, betrays that trust, fine, we'll go all out <laughs> um, and, and really scream from the rooftops. But, I think we did a good job being respectful in our advocacy and that it's, I hope, going to pay off in the long run.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of good lessons there in what you had to say for anyone listening who is, you know, battling an issue in their community. Uh, that talking across the, you know, across the table to the person who's come up with the idea that you think is bad is always a good thing because there's perhaps a way to kind of um work this out, uh, before getting into a constitutional fight before the, the Louisiana uh, state Supreme <laughs> court. Absolutely.
1: Um,
0: well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you were able to join us. I know you're super busy and we'll, we'll be sure to keep uh, the listeners updated. Um, and again, uh, opportunity for everyone listening who cares about preservation to take action th- this day. Um, and, uh, Danielle, I just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I feel very confident that new, uh, Uh, New Orleans is in good hands uh, with your leadership at the Preservation Resource Center. I want to thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity, Nick.
0: Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.